Hello and welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. It's easy to quantify giving, whether it's the annual donations to our favourite causes or the spontaneous acts of generosity in response to natural disasters. It's all there in the dollars and cents. And while we understand what our giving is intended to support, why we give is a far more slippery proposition. Today we're going to find out a little more about the why of giving, the psychology that drives our donating. Our guest is Dr Cassandra Chapman from the School of Business at the University of Queensland. She's an expert on the psychology of giving, and we began by asking that most fundamental of questions, why do we give? Giving is what I consider to be a social behaviour, so it's something that occurs in between different people and observed by different people. And like all other social behaviours, I'd say giving is pretty complex. So I don't think there's an easy answer to why people give. I think there's many answers, and those answers depend on the individual in question, the particular moment that they're giving in their life, the uh, kind of cause that's in need, all sorts of factors. But you know, we know a lot of reasons and motives that people have for giving, and they range from the sort of well-known ones like altruism, which is, you know, a selfless care and concern for other people, to um, more cynical views about giving, which that it can be about reputation and getting status and communicating your high status in the world. One thing I'm really interested in is the role of identity and how, you know, the way we give is a way for us to signal to ourselves and to other people who we are and what we care about in this world and how we're contributing. Our identities can therefore shape whether we give, they can shape who we give to, the ways in which we give, and when we don't give. In a similar way, our identities can be influencing us by the way we look at other people that we perceive to be similar to us and what they're doing. We give for many reasons. Some of the well-established reasons include altruism, reputational concerns, identity, trust. You know, we need to trust charities, costs and benefits. So, you know, how much it's going to actually cost us to give something away and what we might get in return. Efficacy, how much of an impact our donation will have. There's really a broad range of reasons that people give. And I think that they they interact, you know, um, that all of them might be true for the same individual at different times under different conditions. What about duty? Yeah, I do believe, and I believe there's some evidence that some people give out of a sense of obligation and duty. Some people give because they believe it is the right thing to do. And two communities come to mind when I think about the sense of duty being the way one of the factors that motivates people giving. The first is religious communities. So many, you know, faith communities believe part of, you know, your duty as a good citizen is to care for those that are less fortunate or in need. And many faith communities have some form of charitable giving as the core or generosity as the core of their beliefs. And, you know, even have programs such as tithing, where there's like a real clear agenda of a certain portion of your income should go to others. And more recently, and kind of on the other end of the spectrum in a way, um, we have, you know, the effective altruism movement. Um, We have people that are really delving into the philosophy of what it means to be human and to have resources and to know that you have the capability to potentially save a life and whether you can let that opportunity pass you by or not. And those communities are really advocating for people to give out of a sense that it is absolutely the right thing to do and to give an increasingly large portion of their income with the goal of, of indeed saving lives and helping others. So yeah, absolutely. There are people that feel that. I think 
there's also plenty of people that give without a sense of duty. They give, we call it warm glow. They give because they feel great when they give. And it's not so much a push. Like duty is kind of a psychological push towards doing something. But I think about warm go as more of a psychological pull. They know it's something that brings joy to themselves and to others. That they feel extremely satisfied when they give. Uh, they know that their life feels more fulfilled and that it's just a really like virtuous circle of positivity, I guess. Identity is an interesting one in the current context and as a background to what I'm about to ask you, and that is giving to a political party or a political cause mm. or in the pursuit of activism. How does that factor into that broad understanding of people's motivations to give? Yeah, I think it factors quite nicely, really. I mean, two of the key motives, one we touched on identity, the other one values, which I didn't mention before, but, you know, people give because they have, they hold important values and they see their giving as a way to enact those values. Now, those values might be altruistic concern or benevolence for others that we should all have, you know, basic human dignities, for example, but they might be other values, you know, and and so political giving, for example, can be a way to enact whatever your political values are and to put forward an agenda for the kind of world that you want, whatever that looks like for you. I think, you know, my own research recently has been delving into the idea that potentially more than we realise, giving can be a kind of form of activism or collective action where we do indeed see things in the world that we want to change and think, how do we as a group that holds those values and, and is oriented towards that potential future, how might giving be part of the package of, of things that we do in our life that promote those values, that promote that agenda? Political giving is an interesting one because it's clearly oriented towards strong political identities. I mean, people that don't identify with political parties, for example, are unlikely to, to give. But um, I've done some research recently that um, hasn't been published yet, but you know, we asked people which causes they were most likely or felt most strongly that they wanted to support him, and if there were any that they would never support him. The most uh, unsupported, I suppose, causes in both manners were political organisation. So many people feel that giving is not something that should be brought into the political domain. But at the same time, of course, that is like multiple motives. There's many people that feel that that is indeed a really great way to give and to promote the future they want. What have you discerned about changes in giving across generations? Are there changes? I really don't know myself. I haven't really delved into the generational question because, you know, fundraisers are often thinking about this, right? So what we see is that historically and, and right now, many of the donors tend to be older. So what I think isn't well understood is to the extent that that is a life course question or a generational question. I'm certainly not familiar with literature that has a clear answer to that. Um, so I, I can't really speak to it. But it's certainly apparent that the newer generations are engaging in different ways in the world, right? Not just with charities, but with their social groups, with their, you know, political views, with the media, with each other. And so I think it's almost certainly going to be true that the way charities communicate with people and the way people engage with charities will change over time. I notice just, you know, anecdotally, you know, I get a lot of young people wanting to do PhDs and interested in this area of charitable giving and fundraising. And it's almost like 50% of them want to do something about digital engagement or social media, electronic word of mouth, you know, and I'm, I'm often, you know, because I'm an old school fundraiser. So I'm often saying, oh, you know, that's, you know, 
possibly not the, 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 where the heart of fundraising lies. And yet that's bad mentality, right, to think about what's historically worked and not to be looking to the future. So if, if any of the upcoming scholars have anything to say about it, then I think they really see a future which is going to be way more interactive, way more digital. And so that would suggest that the way people give might be changing and the way people think about charity might be changing. I want to reflect on a conversation I had some time ago with a woman in her 90s who had been a community fundraiser for years Mm. as part of a a group of women who had been committed to the same task, not specific outlets, you know, or particular causes, but a whole range of community fundraising operations over a number of years. And I remember saying to her, was your motive to make a difference? And she looked at me somewhat shocked and said, no, it's just what we did. Mm. And I, I reflect on it now and I think was for that generation, was the notion of giving an understanding of what people did in terms of that, to use your mm. you know, obligation and duty, or was it something else? Um, I don't, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting idea. I mean, there's definitely communities that are highly engaged in charitable action. It's certainly my theoretical view that charitable giving and volunteering, which is so donations of money versus donations of time, are psychologically quite distinct phenomena. And the motives that underlie them, some of them overlap, but many of them don't. And so I guess the first thing is that one of the key drivers of of volunteering is both social, so looking for community, looking for ways to connect with other people, to spend time with other people, to get to know them, and um, professional, so getting a chance to develop skills or expertise, especially among younger people, that this is a driver for them, that mean that they can become more marketable in the job market. So that's those two things are like quite different from giving. And so maybe the way this person is is giving as well is in a way that feels social and engaged and, and, you know, relates to community. And, you know, we know that religious donors, for example, are, you know, engaged in community a lot more. And so their giving is, is very social. And for religious donors, they are more likely to say it's part of what they do. <laughs> So reflecting on that volunteering for a moment, and obviously Mm. one of the significant impacts of COVID was the impact it had on volunteers. Yeah, yeah. When we look at how to revive that representation of giving across the country, how do we do that when some of the circumstances might well have changed? It's certainly true that volunteering, the nature of volunteering evolved, the nature of much of our social life and work evolved um, during COVID. I worked with some colleagues in, I think, around 12 or 13 countries around the world to try and understand generosity behaviours during COVID. We were just interested in how generosity was manifesting during that time. Of course, we found this really strongly, that people's volunteering dropped right off, and and that was because you couldn't leave the house. (laughs) That was because of health concerns about being out in the community or health concerns about potentially spreading the virus into vulnerable communities. But then the people that were able to continue, you know, they really found new ways to engage. Sort of digital volunteering seems to be something that not all charities were able to sort of pivot, to use the uh, marketing jargon, but the organisations that were able to find ways to re-engage or to continue to engage with their volunteers, I'm sure are going to have a much better time of maintaining those volunteer relationships because it's so critical that volunteers feel like a part of the, the community with the nonprofit itself. 
financial giving changed in a number of ways. Many people didn't change their giving during the, the pandemic. Over 60% said that, that it hadn't really affected their giving, but the ones that had changed their giving changed in really interesting ways. So some of them gave more because, you know, you can imagine they see a lot more need in their community. It's all very apparent that others are suffering. Some of them also gave more because they were getting this um, job keeper payment. And for some people, they were getting more money through that than they usually had. So they felt like a little uncomfortable, like seeing the need and then saying, well, I've actually got more than usual. So I'd like to share that. But of course, many people were saying, well, I'm afraid for my family. I'm not sure what the situation is, especially at the start of the pandemic when we were surveying people, you know, not really sure what it's going to look like. So that, you know, they were reducing their giving and others were just redistributing their giving. So from whatever causes they had traditionally supported, maybe orienting now more towards the social welfare and health charities, which they felt were more appropriate. If we look at it in terms of what you you and your colleagues have identified in terms of those change in giving habits, how different a circumstance is that to, say, giving to flood relief or bushfires, which both of which have been significant impacts on diff- mm. discrete Australian communities over the past few years? I think there's like a, a, a next level kind of amplification of engagement when you yourself are affected. So I think COVID is different from the floods and the bushfires in that everyone was really affected. They were experiencing it. And many people, whether they were having hardships, they knew people that were having hardships. And so there's this phenomenon um, called altruism born of suffering, which suggests that when people themselves experience some kind of suffering, it can become a catalyst for caring makes sense in a way. I mean, I think it could potentially explain, for example, why so many people that give to cancer charities, they do it because they themselves or their families have lived through or suffered from or lost someone to cancer. You know, we can all abstractly understand that cancer is a terrible thing. And we probably all know people that have been affected by it, but somehow it just changes fundamentally when it's you and you experience it and you're able to understand a need in a way that's much more profound. So I think with COVID, you know, people were feeling isolated, people were sick, people had loved ones that they were deathly afraid for their their lives or their welfare. And I, you know, if it hadn't have been coupled with the financial shocks and fears, like I think we probably would have seen a really massive outpouring of support. With disasters, when you see communities that look so familiar to your, well, of course, when you yourself experience it and you can see your neighbours or your friends affected, this is going to be a big driver. But when you see people that are so like you, living just like you, and you can put yourself in those shoes and say, wow, imagine what it'd be like to have to evacuate your home and lose all your belongings and lose a loved one in a sort of shock event. This can also be quite easy to identify with, right? So when you see these these disasters close to home, I think you get two things. You get this identification with beneficiaries, which I think and my research has shown is like a really critical component in giving. So to the extent that I, as a potential donor, see myself in those beneficiaries and feel that we're similar, we we share some identity, you know, I'm more likely to engage in in helping behaviours for them. So this happens when you see Australians or people in our communities um, suffering. But also psychologically, disasters have an interesting effect in that you see these images and the suffering and you feel empathy for them. You you know, you feel sad about what you're seeing, but also many people feel a personal discomfort 
it creates a, a psychological reaction in them that just feels extremely aversive. It's a type of empathy, but it's a sort of self-oriented empathy. It's called personal distress. If you see a car accident, you just feel so uncomfortable or you see the uh, events of an earthquake or a, a flood and you just personally feel really distressed, then giving can be a really concrete way to alleviate that distress. So what can you do? You can't fix the disaster, but if you give something right now, then you know that you can at least feel that you can dissipate that really unpleasant feeling. So we get both, I think, with the natural disasters, we get both that sort of distress, personal distress, and the connection with the beneficiaries that helps to drive giving. I might have this wrong, but I, I get a strong sense that average Australians are very happy to give to those kinds of instances. But they seem to have a deep suspicion when people who appear to them to have a lot of money give money away to particular causes. There's a, I don't quite understand mm. what the psychology is of that. Do you have a view? I mean, I just like off the top of my head, the thing I think about is just this sort of tall poppy syndrome, right? Here in Australia, we know that giving is a good thing to do. I think we, many of us agree that it's a really wonderful thing for a person to do, but somehow we feel uneasy when we see people showing that they're doing good things, you know? So the extent to which people kind of proclaim their goodness makes it make people uneasy. And, you know, the irony is that it's so critical for these high-level donors to proclaim their goodness because what it does is it communicates social norms that are extremely important and influential. So, you know, I often tell friends and family, you know, if you're taking part in some sort of giving event, if you can tell people about it, whether it's, you know, in conversation, just mentioning or talking about charities, whether it's having, for example, if you sponsor a child, making sure that that's on your fridge. So when your friends come around, they see that and they understand that you do that. As awkward as it makes us feel, it's so powerful in promoting these kinds of actions because we are social creatures. We look to the actions of other people to understand social norms, which are our understanding of what other people like us do or approve of. And so, you know, with these major givers, A, it's newsworthy. So, of course, there's going to be mention of it. But B, you know, by sharing that and by making, you know, for example, the giving pledge and making this all very public, it actually creates a sense that people like us actually value giving, actively want to contribute to the community and want to do this. But at the same time, because we know that people get reputational rewards for being good, you know, we know that we think well of people that are generous, then we can't help but be cynical or concerned about the fact that people are sharing these acts. And so... It's a very um, difficult line to walk, I think, and I can understand why some donors want to remain anonymous. I can understand why um, people can be critical of, of people getting kudos for their generosity. But at the same time, in my heart, as a social psychologist, I think the uh, effect is profound in terms of communicating you know, social norms. It's interesting, though, because I don't hear very many people talk about how supporting a child in, in a developing nation, having that notification on your fridge, those kinds of conversations and those kinds of examples have the intrinsic power that you were mentioning there. What is it about being able to communicate that that makes it so valuable? Well, it's just, you know, think about yourself. If you find yourself in a in a new setting that you're not familiar with, or you find yourself in a new context, maybe you go out to a restaurant with a different cuisine and it has a different kind of cutlery and you don't really know what to do. I mean, you just think, you look around, don't you? You see what other people are doing and you observe and imitate. 
And that's just a simple form of what we're all doing all the time. We're understanding ourselves in relation to other people. And we're looking around and we're thinking, well, I want to be a good academic. What does a good academic look like? What do other academics do? And how can I be a good academic? I want to be a good Australian that fits in and that you know represents my nation well. Well, what are Australians all about? What do they do? And it's not conscious. It's not explicit like that. But subtly, we're doing it all the time. We're looking around the people that we care about what they do, what they value, and we are adjusting our behavior in ways that align. For example, if we ourselves don't trust charities and we think, oh, it's all a rot and, you know, those children don't even exist. I used to work in child sponsorship and I was always at parties and people were telling me how the children don't exist. And I was like, who do you think is writing to you? And they were like, oh, the charity just makes it up. Like they really believe these kinds of things. And then, But if you think that and then you start to see that people you care about, trust and respect actually have different point of view. They do these kinds of behaviors. You start to pay attention and think differently. And so the child, you know, image or whatever it is, you know, that's one of the reasons that charities will send out little fridge magnets or bookmarks or whatever, because they leave what we call behavioral traces because these explicit conversations are super awkward. So it's not like I'm going to go to a dinner party and be like, right, everyone, let's talk about charity. Let me tell you who I gave to this week. That's awkward. But if they just notice, they might ask about it or they might just file it away, you know, and social media leaves behavioral traces. That's why you have things like likes and shares. You go onto YouTube and you can see if a video has 15 views or a video has 15 million views, this gives you some indication about whether this is something that people enjoy and appreciate and whether it's worth your time. And these are behavioral traces. And so charities can do this as well. And major donors can do this in various ways. That's what the little pins are about when you, you know, the poppy day, for example, you know, you walk around and you're like, wow, everyone has giving to poppy day. Maybe I should too, you know, so these are what these are all about. I think Australians would like to have the, when they were asked to list the qual- the national identity, the qualities of the national identity, they'd like to include generosity Mm. or a kind of a general spirit of goodwill. Are Australians generous? Are are we kidding ourselves on that front? No, um, data show that Australians are very generous. So I don't know if you know the World Giving Index. So they, you know, ask people all around the world about three generosity behaviours, whether they've donated money to charity in the previous four weeks, whether they've volunteered, I think, and whether they've helped a stranger. And, you know, when you look at the rates of people that are doing this, I I believe Australia would be in the top 10 countries in the world in terms of generosity. What that suggests to me is, as you suggest, that, yeah, we do think of ourselves as Australians as generous and we do manifest that behaviour. I think the challenge is do we manifest it at high levels? You know, Philanthropy Australia probably has more data about that than I do. But, you know, how much are people giving to charity? How often? How publicly? Those are questions I don't have the answer to. But what I can tell you is, yeah, we are a a very generous nation. Some of your colleagues have actually researched, you know, the tax data that that Mm. shows that there's a very hardy figure of just above 40% of Australians who earn over a million dollars a year who do not claim tax deductibility on donations. And that figure has been fairly immovable over the last four or five years. What does that say, do you think? 
I don't research high-level giving, so I just want to put a caveat here that this isn't based on data. These are just my thoughts based on what I understand about psychology and also fundraising. If that data is correct, and sort of 40% of Australians at the higher income brackets are not claiming tax deductions, and I think we can safely say people in those higher tax brackets would be claiming them if they were making them, that means that that's a lower rate of giving than is typical across the public. So in Australia, we have about 80% of Australians give to charity each year. So if we're only seeing 60% or even less than that of the top income bracket, it does suggest that there's like a fundamentally different approach happening to giving at that level. It could be that they're just giving, but they're giving small amounts and they're not claiming them back. That seems unlikely to me, but it is possible. It could also be that in Australia, we have like a newer culture of philanthropy. So we don't necessarily have the kind of inherited historic money that maybe there is in Europe and North America, which means that you might have people that are wealthy but hesitant to lose that wealth status. So they are potentially more concerned about things like providing for their family. So that might mean that they might be less willing to give substantial money away during their lifetimes. They might be less willing to make bequests to charities. So they just might have a a desire to sort of care for their own family first. I spoke earlier about this idea of making our giving obvious to others. And maybe because of this talk poppy problem, we don't have a normative culture of giving at high levels. In America, for example, it's very normal for wealthy people to be very apparent about their giving and very active in recruiting friends and families to engage in charitable causes. And so if you have money, you see that as part of the identity, right? I believe that wealthy people, for example, in the States, they see it as part of their their identity as a wealthy community to actually hold these kinds of events and sort of talk about giving. I don't think we have that to the same extent here in Australia. It hasn't become a part of the culture. One of the great things that can be done, I guess, is is things like this giving pledge. And I think you mentioned that there's an Australian giving pledge now. But this can be a really wonderful way to normalise high levels of giving, especially among the community that's most likely to influence people like that. Because again, because we care about identities, we don't just look to anybody to understand whether we should give. We look to people that we identify with. So for example, if I'm, and this is just a stereotype, but if I'm a high-flying business person that's you know high up in the corporate ladder and earning a great deal of income, I'm going to be looking to other people in my world to see, well, what are they doing? Are they redistributing their care or are they focusing on other things or their family's needs or what have you? And it was wonderful to hear that there's an Australian giving pledge. And I really believe that this can be a wonderful way to communicate social norms and change that narrative. At Philanthropy Australia, we're obviously committed to double giving by 2030. What are some of the strategies that we can employ to to get there? My belief is that, I mean, I would say this because I'm a specialist in donor psychology, (laughs) um, but I believe that we need to get a lot better as a sector at understanding the psychology underlying giving and in particular understanding the dynamics that exist between donors, beneficiaries, the entities that receive care through donations, and fundraisers, whether that's individuals or organisations. In terms of scholarship fundraising and on giving, there's been a real emphasis on understanding donor characteristics. So how can we find the generous people? 
And we know quite a lot about who the generous people are and, and why they give, et cetera. From when I worked as a fundraiser, there was also this kind of mentality, like what kinds of people are going to be our best prospects? And I think we need to move beyond that approach to understand that, you know, if you look at the statistics, we're all the best donors. Like we're all, there's, you know, 80% of us giving every year. And if you look at it over a period of multiple years, there's probably very few Australians that don't sometimes give to charity. So the question is, how do we engage with the right people at the right time with the right causes? And how do we connect them so that they don't feel overwhelmed by the need, so they don't feel harassed by the sector, which let's face it, some donors do feel that way. So because we have this approach to thinking that there's generous donors and less generous donors, then we have these kind of blanket strategies that go, let's find those generous people and try to get them to give to our cause. Now, I think that's wrong. I think that's dangerous in terms of the viability of the sector, because then you've got your most generous people feeling overwhelmed. And you've got all these other people that probably would be engaged, not being communicated with effectively. So I've been working on a new theory of donor psychology, which essentially argues that you need to look at these three actors. You look at the donor, of course. You look at the beneficiary, so who's going to benefit from the donations in the end. And you look at the fundraiser, whether that's the charity itself or the individual that's making the ask, and you understand the characteristics of all three of them, things like their identities, things like their personalities, their experiences, their values. And then you understand the way that those three actors actually relate to each other. So, you know, whether they share identities, for example, whether they share values, whether they know each other, and you you try to design a fundraising campaign that's bespoke to your context. It's bespoke to your organization, who are the best people that are going to be engaged with this particular cause, with these particular beneficiaries, with these people that work for us. And I think then we're going to have a much more effective approach. We're going to be able to put our funding more efficiently to work. And I think we're going to get more and more people feeling excited to be part of the solution. And so I do think it is possible to double giving. I think there's plenty of capacity to grow, but we do need to change the way we're engaging with people to make um, those conversations more nuanced and more targeted. Do you think the fundraising organisations are the starting point for that kind of, do they embark on that analysis? Who who actually does the analysis that identifies that cohort who is going to represent the best potential supporter? Well, I am doing some of that analysis at a sectoral level. So I've been doing some work to try and understand, for example, what kind of donor archetypes do we have in the market? But beyond that, what kind of beneficiaries do those kinds of donors prefer? What kinds of fundraising characteristics? So whether that's the organization or the individual, what are they going to be most responsive to? So these are a high level way to start thinking. If you're an organization, you can tap into these results and say, okay, let's see what are the best kinds of donors for our beneficiaries, for our fundraisers, and how can we identify them and, and communicate with them? But yeah, I do think uh, the, the organizations themselves have some work to do. And what I'm hoping, because it is, you know, I'm, I'm aware that for these kinds of questions, I'm giving you the answer that it depends, it's complex. I think that 
that is the mentality that needs to shift, that there's, you can't go to a conference and take the notes from somebody about the five best things for your fundraising because the five best things are going to depend on your context and on your communities and your staff and your beneficiaries. But instead, what we can do is we can learn to ask the right questions so that we can use that incredible institutional knowledge that fundraisers have or people within the sector have to actually, they do know a lot of this stuff but they're not necessarily thinking about their strategy and approach in a way that is nuanced to what they do understand. Now, some organizations I'm sure are doing this really well, but it's my view that as a whole in the sector, we're thinking about high level, like what works, but not what works for us and why. I suppose the question is, if I'm a potential donor, that I only have so much I can. Exactly. So how do we make giving a priority in that circumstance? I might be naive here, but I do believe that people want to give. If we can make sure that the conversations we have with potential donors are the conversations they want to have about the world and their contribution to it, I think there's huge potential. I mean, just think about yourself. I can think about myself. I know I could give more than I do if the right opportunities are coming across my desk or, you know, coming up in conversation, you know what it feels like when you come across something that just moves you and you feel so connected and excited to be a part of that contribution, you'll find a way. And I think, you know, this is what's so great about fundraising. It's such an awesome career to have because that's your job, right? Is to like light up people's imaginations about creating whatever world they desire. So I just think if, you know, the more we can have the right conversations with the right people, the more we're going to see people light up and be more generous. And then it's like a virtuous cycle because, you know, I'm sure you've had the experience of giving and then seeing the impacts of that giving and then feeling more and more committed to that solution. And I mean, I'm an optimist, so (laughs) I feel very optimistic about humanity And I do think that we, in our hearts, are generous creatures and we want to contribute and we just have to find the right conversations at the right time with the right people. You mentioned a word there that you don't often hear in relation to fundraising and giving. That's imagination. So why do you attach importance to it in this situation? Well, I mean, that's not something that comes out of my scholarship. I think that's something that comes out of my personal experience. You know, I grew up in New Zealand very comfortable country, relatively speaking, in the world um, with very few difficulties, relatively speaking. Of course, there's difficulties. And, you know, I cared about the suffering of other people, but I couldn't really imagine what that suffering was. And, you know, it was only when I, you know, started traveling, I started working in, in developing countries and having personal experiences that brought my understanding to life and changed the way I thought about the world and changed the way I thought about my role in the world and how I could contribute and where my expertise could be of value. And so I think not everyone has the opportunity that I had to go out into the world and see things firsthand. But when you do that, of course, it fundamentally changes the way you think about your life and your place in the world. I think, I mean, most people are extremely moved by a true understanding of of what's happening in the world. Not everyone has that opportunity for many reasons. So I think that's our role as fundraisers is to find a way to help people see the reality and imagine a new possibility. So I think it's a hopeful enterprise 
in its essence. And a lot of what we have to do is is bring to light the realities of the world, whatever they might be, whatever our sector might be that we are our cause. There's a lot of difficulties in the world, but there's a lot of difficulties that invite possibilities for change. And I think we have both jobs to do, right? Bring the reality and ignite the imagination. That was the Philanthropy Australia podcast. I'm Nick Richardson, and thanks for listening.